Welcome to Very Old Money, a podcast that looks at history through money. Episode 3.2 A Hostage in Thebes. We are back. Sorry about the long delay. A combination of taking time off for the Thanksgiving break and work piling up did not let me finish writing the episode. Now, while work will hang over my head for the rest of the year, hopefully these long delays are done and I will continue to churn out episodes on a more regular basis. As previously noted, the podcast is now available on most podcatchers, including Google, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. And these episodes are also available on YouTube, where you can subscribe to the channel. We have another change today in the source of the coin used in the cover art. The coin listed on today's cover art is from Heritage Auctions, Inc., and you can visit them at coins.ha.com. So on with the show. In 370 BC, Amantas III of Macedon died after a turbulent reign of about 22 to 23 years. Unusually, for an Argiac king of Macedon, he died peacefully in his bed. However, the next decade would be extraordinarily turbulent. From his first wife, Eurydice of Lysenstis, a semi-autonomous sub-kingdom in northern Macedonia, Amantus had three sons, Alexander, Perdiccas, and Philip. Like many Macedonian kings, he was polygamous and he had three sons from a second wife, Aracleus, Aridaeus, and Menelaus. Now, these three were likely underage and they do not really figure in the turmoil of the next decade. Amantus was succeeded by his oldest and still young son, Alexander II. Now, a new king on the Macedonian throne generally meant trouble, and this time it was no different. Taking advantage of a young and inexperienced monarch, Macedon's enemies pounced. The Illyrians in the northwest, who had spent decades warring with Amantus, promptly invaded, and at the same time, a pretender named Pausanias invaded from the east. However, the young king defeated his enemies with Athenian help. And just when things were looking up, Alexander went ahead and intervened in a civil war in Thessaly. And this ticked off the most powerful Greek power of the age, Thebes. Alexander's brother-in-law, Ptolemy of Aloros, appears to have been carrying on a liaison with queen, the queen mother, Eurydice. And the Thebans played him off against Alexander. Backed into a corner, the young king was forced to switch his alliances from Athens to Thebes. And then to keep him in line, he had to send hostages. And this included his youngest brother, Philip. And soon after this, Alexander met his end. He was assassinated by Ptolemy at a festival. And this adds to the body count of yet another Macedonian king to die with his boots on. The new king was Alexander's brother, Perdiccas, who was still underage. And the assassin, Ptolemy, was the regent. Now, it's not clear whether Eurydice was involved in the assassination of her son. And Eurydice is one of the strong-willed Macedonian royal women who are going to play a major part in this story in this season. 
she evidently had an affair with someone while Amantus was still alive, and it is speculated whether this was Ptolemy himself or whether somebody else. But regardless, Ptolemy's usurpation of power caused unrest and again Theban intervention to calm things down. Now Ptolemy would hold on as regent until the new king, Perdiccas III, had him assassinated in 365 BC, and Perdiccas himself would assume full control. But for now, we will move away from Macedonia to Thebes, the Greek power that had just taken the Macedonian prince hostage. In the years after its victory in the Peloponnesian War, Sparta was the strongest military power in Greece, and it tried to run roughshod over the other Greek cities and even its allies. Sparta was inherently a very conservative government, and Sparta hated democracies like Athens. And the Spartans, wherever they could, tried to replace them with pro-Spartan oligarchies. At the end of the Peloponnesian War, Sparta had the support of almost all of Greece. The Athenians had done such a good job taking everybody off, and this included our old friends, the Persians. But then less than a decade later, Sparta would be forced into a war because they started to overreach, and this was a war against Athens, Argos, Corinth, Thebes, and this time, the Persians, always willing to muddy things up, backed them. The primary interest of Persia was to make sure that Greece was divided, and divided Greece was less likely to attack Persian holdings. But the Athenians surprisingly had a run of early victories, and this spooked the Persians, and so they switched their support over to Sparta, and finally they brokered a peace where the great winner was the great king, because the peace treaty recognized his authority over Ionia and Cyprus and ultimately gave him a free hand to deal with Egypt, which had broken away from Persian rule. Now, for the Spartan favor, the treaty also required city-states to be autonomous and banned them from banding together in leagues. So, in the aftermath, Sparta took full advantage of this to break up any threatened coalitions, and Sparta engaged in an aggressive military policy across Greece. Unfortunately for Sparta, their hegemony was brittle and contained a fatal weakness. The fame of Spartan soldiers has gone down through history. And this is evidenced here in the United States by so many American schools and colleges taking on Spartans as mascots. And recently I've had the terrible 300 movies praising the virtue of Spartan soldiers in battle. Now the individual Spartan soldier was highly trained and probably deserved his reputation. However, this military foundation was sustained by the brutal enslavement of the helots of Laconia and Messenia. And these helots sustained the Spartan state through agriculture. And this allowed Spartan males to obsessively spend their time in military training. Native Spartans were overwhelmingly outnumbered by the Helots, maybe as much as seven is to one. And so the big Achilles heel for Sparta was that, that they were terrified that the Helots would revolt. And to keep them in line, the Spartans treated them brutally. And the number of native Spartans was not very high. So as a result, while Sparta had this deserved military reputation of producing elite soldiers, there weren't many of them, and Sparta was historically unwilling to engage in full-pitched battles against equally well-equipped foes. The obvious reason is Sparta had a manpower shortage, and it was not easy for them to replace heavy battlefield losses. So while Sparta, along with its Peloponnesian allies and clients, could field a respectable army, the Spartan contingent was a small fraction of this large army. 
Sparta's enemies knew about this Achilles' heel, and they knew that freeing the Helots would cripple Sparta. Athens had tried to do this in the Peloponnesian War, but it had failed. So Sparta's hegemony needed an opponent who would bring it crashing down, and Thebes would produce just such a statesman. This statesman is featured on the coin that's on the cover art today. The coin from Heritage Auctions is a stator from Thebes, dated somewhere between 364 and 362 BC. Now it's a heavy stator, it's about 12.24 grams, so this is using a very different weight standard, and it's about 21 millimeters, so it's small, heavy, and chunky. Now these staters of Thebes are elegant in their simplicity, and these are one of the most iconic coinages of ancient Greece. In the ensuing de decade of Theban supremacy, there was an enormous output of these coins. Now the obverse of the coin simply contains the iconic Boeotian shield. Thebes is in Boeotia. And this shield was carried by Theban soldiers into battle. Boeotia was famous for armor, and the shield is often depicted in art with Greek heroes. Now in contrast to the Aspis, which is the most commonly seen Greek shield, which was heavy, round, made of wood and bronze, this shield is longer and more is narrower and more oval, and it's rounded at the vertical ends, and then it has a scooped indentation at the sides. Now, these indentations serve a purpose because it allows the hoplites who are standing in a shield wall to stab and thrust without having to expose themselves, because in the rounded shield, they have to reach around the edge of the wider shield to make the stab. This Indentation also reduced the weight of the shield, so it made it lighter and easier to carry, something the average soldier was probably very happy about. And the shields were generally made out of wood, they were covered with animal hides, and so it made it, they were cheaper for the hoplites who had to supply their own armor, it was cheaper for them to afford. And because they were made out of wood and animal hides, is probably why none of them has survived to the modern day. They survive on art, and they survive on coins. The reverse of the coin carries an amphora with raised handles, or a cantharos. The raised handles look like volutes on ionic columns, and so these type of pictures are sometimes called volute craters, and these may have been used to dilute wine for drinking. Civilized Greeks diluted their wine. Only barbarians like the Macedonians drank it undiluted. Thebes was the mythical birthplace of Dionysus, the god of wine, and as a result, Dionysian imagery is common on the reverses of Thebes, Theban coins. Sometimes you have grapes, which would turn into wine. Sometimes you have the head of Dionysus himself. And more often than not, you have a drinking cup or the amphora which carried the wine. This coin is a rare variant in that it has a rosette over the drinking cup. And across the field from the left to the left and to the right of the cup is the name of the magistrate. So in Greek, you have EP on the left of the cup and AMI which is the shortened version of the name of the statesman we just referred to, Epaminondas. Epaminondas is one of the greatest generals of antiquity, the man who shattered Spartan military power. Cicero called him the first man of Greece, but in the succeeding centuries he has fallen into obscurity. In 382 BC, a Spartan general on his own initiative occupied Thebes and installed a puppet government. This alienated many Thebans, and three years later, a band of exiles, led by Pelopidas and aided by Epaminondas, launched a coup and expelled the Spartan garrison. 
Epaminondas supposedly had saved Pelopidas's life in a battle previously, and the two would be political allies for the next two decades. When the Spartans sent an army to retake the city, the Thebans refused battle. And after venting their frustration on the countryside, the Spartans withdrew. Thebes was now independent, and it reconstituted the Boeotian Confederacy in democratic form. Over the next decade, Sparta repeatedly and unsuccessfully invaded Boeotia, and each time the Thebans refused open battle with large armies. However, in 375 AD, Pelopidas created history, leading just the sacred band of Thebes, which is an elite force of 300 hoplites created from 150 pairs of male lovers and 200 cavalry, he faced a Spartan army somewhere between 1,000 and 1,800 hoplites. Now, he was heavily outnumbered, and initially the soldiers under his command despaired, but Pelopidas came up with a unique solution. He ordered his cavalry to charge, and then he grouped together the sacred band in an unusually dense formation, and he punched through the Spartan line behind them. This heavy, compact Theban formation punched through the Spartan phalanx, and then it hit the flanks on each side, and the Spartan army fled. This battle at Tegaira is the first recorded set-piece battle, where the Spartans were beaten by a numerically inferior foe. And this was a preview of what would eventually happen in a few years. So after a decade of fighting, where Athens was also sucked in on the Theban side, because Athens basically had no love for Spartan hegemony, the, exhaust, the exhausted parties met at Sparta in 371 BC for a peace conference. Now, before the peace conference, the terms had basically been agreed upon, but the peace broke down when Epaminondas insisted that he would sign for all of Boeotia and not just Thebes. And when the Spartans objected to this, he noted that if that was the case, Sparta would sign only for themselves and not for all the cities of Laconia. The furious Spartan king, Agesilaus broke off peace talks, and the two sides prepared for war. Now this showdown came pretty soon after. Sparta was a diarchy in that it had two kings from two royal houses ruling at the same time, and then they also had another assembly which oversaw the kings, and the kings generally led the Spartans into battle. So the other Spartan king, Cleombritus, was sent into Boeotia with 10,000 hoplites. They avoided the usual mountain passes where they could have been ambushed and they flanked the Boeotians entering from an unexpected area. And so the Thebans had to scramble to their soldiers to come and stop them. As the Spartans marched on towards Thebes, they paused at Leuctra, where they were faced by a smaller Boeotian army of only about 6,000 hoplites and about 1,500 cavalry. Pelopidas commanded the sacred band. Now initially, again, the Boeotians are outnumbered here. The, the Boeotian generals were not particularly eager to fight until Epaminondas won the day. And what happened next in the battle that followed was a tactical innovation not seen before in phalanx warfare, the oblique formation. So it's a question whether this was pre-planned, whether, whether this was an ad hoc adjustment to the fact that the Thebans were heavily outnumbered in this battle, and some historians have suggested this. But this oblique formation would survive well past antiquity. And it, it would survive into the age of gunpowder. And most famously, in the middle of the 18th century, one of the biggest one of the biggest fans of the oblique formation was Frederick the Great, King of Prussia. So, in a phalanx, men held their shield in the left 
hand as they stood side by side to each other. And they thrust with their swords and spears from the right. So the unfortunate problem with this is the man who stands at the end of the line is exposed on the right. And once you're exposed, you have a natural tendency to want to protect yourself. And so this results in the right end of the line starting to curve as the guy is trying to protect himself. Now, to counteract this, armies generally place their elite soldiers on the right. And this is what the Spartans did. The Spartan king Cleombrotus, along with 300 of his best men, was on the right. A typical phalanx was about 8 to 10 men deep. So normally, Cleombrotus and the elite Spartans on the right would have faced the weaker portion of the Theban, the Boeotian army on their left flank. But here, Epaminondas changed things up. Instead of putting his best men on the right, he put them on the left. And then instead of having the typical phalanx of 8 to 10 men deep, he bunched them into a group, 50 men deep. And this bunched up deep formation was launched at the Spartan right wing. Now the center and the right parts of the Boeotian line were under strength as a result, but they marched slower. So each of them, the center marched after the left wing had started moving slightly behind them and the right wing was a little further back. And there's a simple reason for this. These guys were under strength. They would, in normal circumstances, they would be outflanked by the Spartans. But by marching in this echelon formation, they were refusing the flank and they were instructed as they made contact to gradually fall back. This echelon formation is also being used in the 20th century by naval and air forces, where you see them not necessarily moving forward in the straight line, but a little behind the other ships or planes ahead of them. Now this strategy worked brilliantly. The sheer weight of the Theban line caused the Spartan right flank to collapse and King Cleombrotus himself was killed. The Spartans fought on long enough to recover the body of their king but then they broke. And when the Spartans broke, their allies on the left flank also broke and fled. Supposedly about only 300 Boeotians were killed in the battle for somewhere between 1,000 and 4,000 Peloponnesians. But worse for the Spartans, 400 out of the 700 Spartans in the battle were killed. So as I noted earlier, Sparta was not built to take these losses. It was very, very hard to replace these super-trained men. Sparta generally just did not have the manpower to do this. Also in this battle, Sparta had just lost to an outnumbered enemy, and the Spartan, one of the Spartan kings himself had been killed. And this was a huge, huge defeat for Sparta. And this really, really shook their power. The next year, Epaminondas launched his first invasion of the Peloponnese, where he turned the crack in Spartan power into a gaping hole. Before this invasion, the Athenians, taking advantage of Sparta's weakness to twist the knife, had organized a peace conference that proclaimed the Peloponnesian cities independent from Sparta. When Sparta tried to declare war to bring them in line, they appealed to the Thebans, who sent in an army. And this army was joined by many of Sparta's former allies and soon swelled to 50,000 men. And Sparta just did not have an army big enough to face something like this in battle. So they withdrew behind their walls and Laconia itself was ravaged. And then, on his way back, Epaminondas freed the helots of Messenia. He rebuilt their ancient city with strong fortifications. Now this cost Sparta a third of its territory and about half of its helots, which totally 
which really wounded Sparta's economy and prestige. Epaminondas returned home not to a hero's welcome, but to a political prosecution. According to Cornelius Nepos, a Roman biographer who wrote two centuries later, this prosecution was laughed out of court, where Epaminondas asked that if he was to be executed, his epitaph would read, Epaminondas was punished by the Thebans with death because he obliged them to overthrow the Lacedaemonians at Leuctra, whom, before he was general, none of the Boeotians durst look upon in the field, because he not only by one battle rescued Thebes from destruction, but also secured liberty for all Greece, and he brought the power of both people to such a condition that the Thebans attacked Sparta, and the Lacedaemonians were content if they could save their lives. And nor did he cease to prosecute the war till after set settling Messene, he shut up Sparta with a close siege. Needless to say, after such a statement, he was restored to office and the prosecution was laughed out. Now this was the Theban state at the height of its might, when the young Philip of Macedon arrived as a hostage to receive an education from Epaminondas himself. Philip also appears to have become the Eromenos of Pelopidas. Now, this is an arrangement that would scandalize modern society, was, but, was, but was very common in the Greek world, particularly Sparta and Thebes. Basically, it was a socially accepted romantic relationship between an older adult and a younger male, generally in his teens, with the older male sort of acting as a mentor and tutor, in addition to the romantic relationship. Now, Philip would stay in Thebes until 365 or 364 BC, and he really appears to have soaked in the military and diplomatic lessons he received from Epaminondas. Both Philip and his son would show tactical flexibility in battle and ability to lead basically a combined armed operation of cavalry and infantry, and this training appears to have derived from his time in Thebes. While he was in Thebes, Philip would have seen Epaminondas launch two more invasions of the Peloponnesus, where eventually no army would challenge him in the field. He would have seen Epaminondas use his good judgment and try to make treaties with the oligarchs of Achaea, only to be forced by pressure from his allies in Arcadia and rivals back home to replace them with democracies. And then these democracies collapsed pretty quickly as the oligarchs came back to power, stubbornly committed to the Spartan cause. And while he was in Thebes, Philip would also see the rising hostility to Theban hegemony. One of the big weaknesses of the Greek city-state system was no city wanted another city lording it over them. So in the Peloponnesian War, many were happy to see Athens humbled, and then many were happy to see Sparta taken down a peg, and now you have Thebes, which is the big bad boy in the block, and nobody wanted Sparta replaced with Thebes. So in the years after Leuctra, as Epaminondas finally broke the Peloponnesian League and Messenia remained loyal, well, after all, he had set them free some of Thebes' allies gradually started reverting back to the Spartan alliance. And you can see a map of the various power blocks in Greece at the time inserted on the website, veryoldmoney.com. Now, Philip himself would not be around for the Theban endgame because he would return back to Macedonia, as I said, around 365-364 BC, the year after his brother had killed the regent and assumed control of the state. In 364 BC, Pelopidas would be killed in a reckless campaign in Thessaly, and we don't know whether Philip returned to Macedon before or after this. 
But in 362 BC, Epaminondas launched his final expedition into the Peloponnese. Now, the intention of this expedition was to cow his former ally, Mantinea, which was now starting to oppose Theban influence. Epaminondas brought in an army from Boeotia, Thessaly, and Euboea, and this was joined by Argos, Messenia, and some of the Arcadians. And Mantinea asked Sparta, Athens, Achaea, and the rest of Arcadia for help. Now, Athens had a long history of rivalry with Sparta, and that culminated in the Peloponnesian War and the Spartan defeat. So they were always hostile to Sparta. But there was no real love loss between Athens and Thebes. Because at the end of the Peloponnesian War, Thebes had demanded that Athens should be destroyed and its citizens enslaved. Now this is ironic considering the karma that's coming down Thebes' way in a few decades. So Athens joined this anti-Theban alliance. So this campaign, Epaminondas first tried to catch Sparta and then Mantinea undefended. And when this failed... He was forced to come to battle on the plains of Mantinea. Now, this battle contains some of Epaminondas' trickery. And this sort of reminds me of what Alexander would do with his cavalry at the Battle of Gaugamela, which we will cover in a later episode. So, according to Xenophon, after getting his army ready, Epaminondas suddenly marched parallel, parallel to the Mantineans, right to left, as if he was marching away for the field. And then suddenly he turned right, getting ready to attack. So companies from his extreme right wing were brought up again to add weight to the left wing, sort of what he had done at Leuctra. And on the wings he had cavalry and light infantry. And so when he suddenly advanced, the Mantineans were caught off guard. The opposing cavalry was driven off, and again, like at Leuctra, his left wing punched through the opposing right wing. Unfortunately, as this happened, he was mortally wounded by a Spartan. As the opposing army broke, the dispirited Thebans and the allies did not pursue them. The loss of Epaminondas was even right then recognized. Now he had never married, he had no children. He is said to have claimed Leuctra as a daughter who would live forever. Like Pelopidas, he had young, many young male lovers. But with his death, Theban hegemony was at an end, and Thebes would withdraw from its aggressive policies of the previous decade. Now Sparta had been defeated yet once more, and it was not in any position to fill the vacuum. Messenia was independent, Sparta had lost a lot of manpower in this war, and Sparta, after this, basically declines as one of the major Greek powers. And almost by default, Athens, which had been humbled in the Peloponnesian War 40 years ago, and which Thebes at that point wanted destroyed, would step up to the forefront. Now Boeotia still remained independent, uh, but the decades of internecine warfare had sapped the Greek city-states of their strength. Basically, what this decade shows that even with such a great general in Thebes, none of the other city-states were willing to follow him. And none of the city-states had the manpower or the resources to totally dominate Greece. And as they kept fighting each other, they ended up weakening each other. And this would continue for another 24 years until, in desperation, Thebes and Athens not Sparta, which would be sulking and sitting on the sidelines at this point, would try to combine their forces to stop Epaminondas' former royal pupil from taking over Greece, only to fail miserably. Now, Epaminondas was a tactical genius. He ultimately failed in his strategic goals. And as I said, with his death, Theban hegemony ended. And then is another reason why he has sort of faded away from history. Because 27 years after his death came the big catastrophe. Thebes itself would be wiped off the map. And that is a story we are going to look at this season. 
But it's time to move away back from Thebes to our former hostage who was returned back to his brother in Macedonia, where in 360 BC, a military disaster would leave the king dead, the army annihilated, two sets of enemies invading from the west, not one, but this time two pretenders being supported by neighbors to the north and the south, and worst of all, a child on the throne. Basically, another normal royal succession in Macedonia. So we will see you next time in episode 3.3, A Kingdom in Peril. If you like this episode, please give this podcast a 5-star review on iTunes or on the podcatcher where you access this podcast. We are still a new podcast and good reviews are essential in getting the word out. Thank you once again for your support.